The scripture for today is from Luke 7, verses 1 through 17. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread through the Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Let's, uh, let's pray before we jump in here. Father, I just ask that you would be with me as I uh, preach your word here in Luke. I thank you for this passage and all the things that we can learn from it. pray that you would open the hearts uh, of your people here that they would receive this word uh, and be molded by it, transformed by it, and that we would uh, be faithful in our calling to you uh, and the things that you've called us to. pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, I figured that we could ease into the sermon today with a story first. Uh, this is admittedly a story that will mostly appeal to our aerospace engineers. Uh, but for those of you who aren't aerospace engineers, hopefully this will still be somewhat interesting. But there was a man named Robert Cannon. Uh, he was a bright individual that ended up earning his PhD from MIT, and he later taught there before moving on to Stanford, where he served as the chair of the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Uh, he is known for his work on hydrofoils, uh, which uh, he worked on in the 50s and until pretty recently, actually, they were the fastest version of them. Uh, and he is perhaps, though, even more well-known for his co-founding of NASA's Gravity Probe B. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with the specifics, here's what NASA's site says. NASA's Gravity Probe B mission has confirmed two key predictions derived from Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity, which the spacecraft was designed to test. The experiment, launched in 2004, used four ultra-precise gyroscopes to measure the hypothesized geodetic effect, the warping of space and time around a gravitational body, and frame dragging, which is the amount a spinning object pulls space and time with it as it rotates. Gravity Probe B determined both effects with unprecedented precision by pointing at a single star, I am Pegasi, while in a polar orbit around Earth. Please do not ask me to explain any of that because I have no idea what any of it means. Uh, but what, I, what grabbed my attention about that story is that this project almost never happened. Uh, there were lots of obstacles to it with lots of delays and funding issues. Uh, but even the very first meeting uh, is where this place, uh, this project almost died. Three men decided to meet to talk it over, uh, talk about the possibility of using gyroscopes for this project. A man named Leonard Schiff asked uh, Robert Cannon about them uh, because Cannon was a, an expert in them, and, uh, and so he wondered about their precision. He told Cannon they would need a gyroscope that had drift rates less than one degree per million years. Cannon, Cannon responded that the best gyroscopes out there at the time were being used in submarines, uh, but their drift rates were only at one degree per year, so literally a million times worse than what they needed to be. Uh, Schiff concluded then that this must just be a thought experiment only and that there was really no way to carry out this enormous project. However, they kept talking, and eventually Cannon suggested a new idea, that if they did the experiment in orbit, it would reduce the drift rate by a million times. Well, now all of a sudden they had some hope here, uh, and ultimately about 45 years later, it successfully launched and concluded proving their hypothesis. Uh, this is a somewhat random story, uh, but we'll come back to it in a little bit. But we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're entering some fun territory uh, where tensions are beginning to mount concerning Christ and who he is. Uh, but it all starts with what people hear about Jesus as he ministers throughout the area. Certainly, uh, you know, people are starting to talk, and, and certainly we can expect for that to be the case. I mean, he's going around, he's teaching uh, brilliantly, by all accounts, he's healing people. Uh, you know, we talk about dumb stuff all the time. You know, uh, you know why the neighbors are fighting, or, or you know, uh, uh, why somebody isn't speaking to their uncle's girlfriend, or whatever the issue might be. Right? We find stuff to talk about, especially in smaller towns. So it's not really a surprise then that you know they're talking about Jesus and these amazing things that he's doing. He's garnering some attention. But we pick up in our passage today where Jesus has just finished preaching to a large crowd and he has healed some more people. Our passage today is really two stories being told to make one larger point uh, about who Christ is. What I find so fascinating about this passage is that each encounter reveals about people and their perceptions of Christ. The first story has a centurion with a sick servant that he once healed. The second is about a widow and her dead son. What each person says gives us an understanding of what the rumors were about Jesus, but also how they understood him as a person. There is some strategic planning here by several people, 
each one constructing a careful argument for Jesus to hear, at least in the story of the centurion. Uh, But we're going to take a look at each one of those people and glean what we can. So the first, the centurion says, and we're reading from uh, Luke 7, this is verse 1 through 3, but it says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. We see first that the centurion heard about Jesus. Right away, we can infer that the centurion did not know Jesus personally, but had heard some reports or some rumors about him. Uh, Whatever he has heard, it has given him hope for his situation, that perhaps his ill servant could be taken care of by Jesus. And when you need something from someone, you typically just go up and ask them. Uh, And so this is peculiar then that the centurion doesn't go up and ask Jesus. He actually sends out uh, these elders of the Jews. So why is that? Is he too busy? Is he can't be bothered to do it himself? I think the context tells us what is actually going on. If we look at verses uh, 6 to 7, then we see that he views himself as unworthy of Jesus even coming into his home. We read it there. It says, When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. As Jesus approached, the centurion sent his friends to tell Jesus uh, these things. And so he still is making, uh, avoiding making direct contact with Jesus, even as Jesus was on his way over to his house. The centurion recognizes Jesus' power and authority, and in light of the magnitude of such, he sees himself as totally unworthy of Christ. He bows to Christ's authority, knowing that in the same way that he can command his soldiers, Jesus can command disease. Now that's the good, healthy part of the centurion's understanding of Christ. There is, however, I think, a wrong understanding here uh, of his position before Christ. The reason he sends Jewish elders is because of a false understanding of who Jesus is. I think the text is clearly communicating that the centurion believes that Jesus belongs to the Jews exclusively. In his mind, Jesus is really just ministering to to the Jewish people. Um, And so, you know, at that time, Gentiles... Uh, or non-Jews, basically uh, Jews would try to avoid these people. If you were a good Jewish person, you didn't want to make yourself unclean, uh, and therefore you wouldn't associate too much with these Gentiles. The centurion then, he's trying to maintain distance, but he's also desperate for that miraculous power of Jesus. He's being bold in his own right, uh, even though he is indirectly interacting with Jesus, Uh, We see then that Centurion essentially says that Jesus is capable, but is he willing? There's some doubt there. Now we turn to the elders now. We do not know much about these men, but the elders clearly have some sort of positive relationship with the Centurion. Not only are they comfortable going to Jesus on his behalf, they also seem eager to do so. Uh, Clearly they deeply respect this man. The fact that they do associate with this Gentile 
is also telling of just how upstanding this man must be. That respect is the motivation they have for going to Jesus to plead with him. Notice the approach they take with Jesus, though. They attempt to convince Jesus that the centurion is worth expending the healing power that he has. We see this uh, in the passage. It says, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So they make two statements here about the centurion. The first one is that the centurion loves our nation. They want to prove to Jesus that the centurion is worth listening to because he is basically one of them. The centurion loves Israel, apparently, uh, and they think that because he supports them, that this should overcome any barrier that there might be between Jesus and helping a Gentile. In their eyes, just like the centurions, there's a sense that Jesus is ministering to Jews only. Their understanding of God and themselves is that he only favors ethnic Israel. But we see repeatedly throughout Scripture that what God actually favors are those who embody what Israel was always supposed to be. This explains why we see at times God pronouncing judgment on ethnic Israel and blessing Gentiles elsewhere. We see one example of judgment in Amos 2, uh, reading verses 4 here uh, through 14. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. The Lord says, he goes on, I will, not repent, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning his holy name. They stretch out beside every altar and garments, taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath, and I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I am about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself. And the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. It's a long and harsh judgment against Israel. But the point there is that uh, God is choosing to judge them because they are not acting like the people that he has called them to be. In Exodus, God says that the Hebrews will be a kingdom of priests unto him and that they will be a holy nation. But what follows that statement, if you remember from our Exodus series a while back, 
are a bunch of laws and ethical concerns that God lays out uh, that serve to determine what it means to be a kingdom of priests. It was not, at least primarily, their ethnicity that made them a people of God. Further proof comes of this when we look at how the Gentiles were sometimes received into Israel. The fact is, anyone was allowed to join Israel, uh, even the enemies. And the only condition is that the men in the family be circumcised. We might look at that and think that you know, circumcision is just some ritual and so it's sort of a works-based thing happening here. But really what, what it is is it's a symbol of them being brought into the same covenant that God has with Israel. They're being made Israelites in a sense. And we also see women joining Israel as well. Rahab and Ruth both become part of God's people. Uh, and even though they're Gentiles, it's because of their faith that they are included, not because of their works. We also know this to be true, if you're somehow still not convinced, uh, because this, is, this was the crux of Jonah's issue with God, right? that God would be willing to bless and to save those outside of Israel, even, though, uh, even those who have served as oppressors to them. Now, quick aside, it is of course true that being part of ethnic Israel meant something. Okay, we see Israel fail repeatedly in their efforts to be that kingdom of priests, and God does judge them for that. But we also see that he comes alongside them and he re- restores them time and time again. God does not abandon his people even when they fail to live as his people. So getting back to the elders, okay, they're not completely wrong then. There's, there's some distinction here, but they probably have it mostly wrong. Because it is not the support of Israel that makes one righteous or worthy, but righteousness that makes one righteous. It seems that they're trying to include the centurion uh, in these blessings, but they're still doing so at an arm's length. They're wanting an exemption on a rule that Jesus never set, that only they themselves had set. The centurion's support for Israel might be admirable, but we've seen demonstrated again and again that God wants people who write his law on their hearts. Their statement, the elder's statement, as short as it is, is a fundamentally flawed way of saying that the centurion deserves to have his request granted. Their need to justify this request to Jesus indicates that they misunderstand who Jesus was, uh, who he was ministering to, and his very person. All right, now that was just the first uh, argument that they gave Jesus. But uh, the second one is probably even more problematic. They say that the centurion built them a synagogue. This guy has financially supported them and their beliefs. And inherent in this statement is a regurgitated form of what we just discussed. But they're trying to present the centurion as functionally Jewish. So that Jesus might be convinced to bestow his blessing upon his servant. But there is also a sense uh, that what they are arguing for Jesus is that they should, uh, that Jesus has an obligation to the centurion. In their eyes, this man has supported their country, and he's also financially sacrificed for them and their beliefs, for God himself. They argue that the centurion is worthy because of his alliance and because of his contribution to the things of God. Their belief here is something many of us struggle with. Uh, we often fool ourselves into thinking that if we read our Bibles, we pray, go to church, be a nice person, and we're sort of guaranteed uh, certain things in life. We have this unspoken arrangement with God. 
where we do what we think he wants us to do, and then in return he will bless us. Some believe in extreme blessings, that by giving money to God through the church, that uh, we somehow purchase a right to this great wealth, uh, and that God will give us tenfold whatever we give, or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and I would say that's heretical. We do not believe that we can earn our favor with God. But we believe, like the centurion, that we are unworthy, that nothing we could possibly do would be enough for us to make God owe us. Right? God is the giver of all things. We hopefully recognize that in this context, but still many of us believe we're afforded smaller blessings. We might think that God isn't going to make us rich, but maybe we hold on to this false idea that God will protect us from all tragedies and discomforts so long as we do our part. As long as I'm a good Christian, then no terrible illness will ever befall me or I'll never lose my home. My children will never despise me. And these are not promised, though. And whether they happen or not is not an indication of where we stand before God. In fact, the Bible often affirms the reality that sometimes the wicked prosper while the righteous wither. If you've been at Kish for very long at all, you have heard it said that none of us are good, that none of us deserve anything good from God. Any good that we do receive is purely out of the goodness of God's heart and has absolutely no bearing on our own hearts. If God treated us as we deserved, well, I shudder to think of what that might look like. But the elders have bought into this idea, and they tried their very best to convince Jesus that the centurion is a good man that is worthy of his blessing, and that Jesus owes this man for his financial sacrifice. What does Jesus say, though? Jesus doesn't verbally respond to most of these statements uh, or actions by the centurion and the elders. However, we still see certain ideas communicated by Christ. So to recap the statements or beliefs of others, they are that Gentiles are unworthy of Christ. They think that supporting the things of God gets you an in with Christ. And they also think that sacrificing for the cause obligates Christ to answer people. What Jesus says instead, though, is that he is willing, that your faith is what matters, and that all may approach him. Now, right away, I want to point out the obvious. Jesus was clearly willing to help this man. Okay? He hears the request, and he goes. We believe in a God that hears us, and he intervenes in the centurion's life. Um, and by the way, have you noticed that we're talking so much about the centurion and not even the, the ill servant? Uh, Luke is one, he loves to write about these miracles that Jesus performed. And I think he, he sees the, those miracles as, as hope being offered to the hopeless. However, Luke also knows that this was not Jesus' priority. Jesus did not primarily come to heal and to restore the sick, but to seek and to save the lost. Miracles were part of that larger mission, but this context, context is important. And I think that's why the ill servant actually doesn't get all that much uh, screen time, so to speak. Which leads to the next point. <clears throat> Jesus was astonished at the man's faith. Why was it so startling? Well, the man had never met Jesus, but he felt unworthy of meeting Jesus. Uh, despite that, he believed that Jesus was powerful enough to heal his servant, even though he never met him. He explicitly says that he doesn't want Jesus to come into his house. 
Just say the word, he says. He recognizes that authority that Jesus has, and he sees it as far superior to his own authority. Jesus finds this remarkable because in Israel, many felt like they had to earn that good favor from God. Many would have felt that if you want God to answer your prayer, you will need to get your life together and be religious and do all the correct things. It was a common thought that you needed to make yourself worthy before God. The centurion understands that he is not worthy, but that God is able. The last thing Jesus indirectly says is that he is approachable, knowable. A key part of Jesus' ministry was to bust open the doors of salvation, making reconciliation with God possible for all who believe. In the Hebrew Scriptures, we are shown that in order to gain access to God, you need a priest to go on your behalf to offer sacrifices. In Christ, however, we have God incarnate, God in the flesh, who also serves as our priest. Jesus' coming doesn't mean that we no longer need a priest. He is the priest. The priest who took on flesh, who offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins, and who now intercedes on our behalf before God the Father. We have direct access to God, but it is through the God priest that we have that access. We no longer need another person to go through for that access. We have it here with Christ. And having that access changes everything. There's a much more personal relationship, one where we can actually know the person. It is only through these direct relationships where we pick up the smaller details of a person that make for a better story or a better picture of that person, where we begin to see the whole person. Going back to our story with Robert Cannon... There's another detail to it that I left out. Remember, they had this meeting. Well, I I happen to know that this meeting, uh, where they discussed some of the most advanced concepts of their day, took place in the nude. I'm sorry if I painted any unpleasant or unwanted pictures in your mind, but I know this little detail because Robert Cannon was my wife's grandfather, and I knew him personally. So whatever unwanted pictures are in your head, believe me, they're far worse in my head. Uh, and I should also mention that this uh, meeting took place at the Stanford University pool in the 50s where there was a no swim trunks rule. Yeah, I don't know what was going on back then either. It's the 50s. It's weird. I don't know. But that detail likely only comes from me knowing him personally. And there are far more details that I have that color that story. I know, for instance, that Diana's grandpa would be delighted to know that one of his stories had made it into a sermon. I can imagine his smile He's uh, while wearing his atla hat, which you probably don't know what that means, but it was a fond saying of his in an acronym form. It meant one thing leads to another, which was a commentary on how he saw life unfold for him and something that he delighted in God about. He was in awe of how such small actions could snowball into these uh, amazing things, like how a nude meeting ultimately brought about the confirmation of Einstein's theory of relativity. But it's through that personal relationship that we know these things about people. And you have all these stories about people that are simply impossible to really explain to somebody. Uh, You can't give them the full meaning of that story unless your audience knows the person. You have to experience that person for yourself to get that greater insight. The same is true of Jesus and our experiences of him. 
Now, you may look at the centurion and say that this man never experienced Christ because he never experienced him directly. Jesus never goes into the house. Remember, he sends out his friends. But do you really think that the centurion never experienced Jesus directly? What else would you call the experience of going to check on your uh, sick servant that you care for deeply, only to discover that he is suddenly quite healthy, that your, that your request of the most powerful person that you've ever heard of has been granted, despite him having never even stepped foot in your home. Is that really not a direct experience with Christ? For those of us who belong to Christ, we have had that direct experience, even though we've never physically met him. How else do we explain that powerful transformation that took, that took place the transfer from the kingdom of darkness to that of light, that place where greed, envy, lust, or hatred consumed us to now being in the kingdom of heaven where love and mercy abound. We move on now to the next story, and we're going to look now at what the world says about Jesus. Uh, this is a new story about a widow whose son had just died, her only son. So sure, Jesus healed the sick and the blind, but there was still life in them, a small glimmer of hope residing within them as they still drew breath. But this man is dead. There is no more breath. There is no more hope. Reading verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. Kurt Vonnegut is famous for his phrase, So it goes, and so forth, which is a fairly dismissive, flippant remark that he would often make after describing some terrible tragedy. And his point in doing that was to communicate that life is random, and some people get uh, stuck with the bad things and some with the good, but that ultimately none of it really matters anyways. Vonnegut would say that ultimately you're alone. In Jesus' day, those on the bottom of the social order probably would have identified with what Vonnegut said in the 20th century. They already had so little power, so little chance to advance up in society, there is a real sense in which, if you can't advance in life in some way, you lack hope. And if there's nothing to aspire to, then what can you even do in life? Now, I sound morbid and depressing, but this is what the woman was experiencing. Already widowed, she was likely financially stressed. Her son was the only security that she might have in life, as he would be able to work uh, and provide for her. And of course, relationally, we know that her husband and her only son are now dead. She has no more emotional support in that sense. I'm reminded of Naomi in the Hebrew Bible, but 
Even she was fortunate to have Ruth there to comfort her, uh, and who sacrificed her own prospects to be with Naomi. Who did the widow of Nain have? A crowd of people? Maybe, but we're not told that they have any real obligation to her. Um, We know, based on the context, that it might just be mourners. Society and previous experience of others would have said that she had no one. The world would say that she had no hope, no chance of restoration. But the world is wrong. Vonnegut is wrong. Jesus did not happen to be coming to Nain that day. We are told that soon after dealing with the centurion, he headed to Nain. And just at that precise moment, where they're about to bury this dead son, Jesus arrives. To this point, Jesus has cast out demons, he's healed fevers, paralysis, leprosy, but he has never raised someone from the dead. But Jesus has authority over life and death. And as the centurion said, all he has to do is simply say the word, and this man will be raised. Jesus demonstrates once again that he is both willing and able to raise this man. But Jesus doesn't just raise him. Again, these two stories, they're not even about the miracles. We see Jesus show concern. The God incarnate, the God who rules the galaxy, the one who knows all things, had compassion on this lowly woman. And he speaks to us when he speaks to her in saying, Do not weep. Jesus is not against us expressing emotion. Heavens no. But he's expressing emotion here in this very passage. But he's telling the woman, and because it is recorded in Scripture for us to read 2,000 years later, he is telling us that he cares. He cares about little old me. He cares about little old you. And because he cares, hope remains within us. The world says some things or perhaps some people are irredeemable, but Jesus says that he can restore even the unrestorable. Friends, we are all headed into a tough season as a church. Many of you um, probably have already felt like you're in a tough season with COVID, and obviously our news of the Tungases feels especially heavy. But we learn in these stories that Jesus is intimately aware of our needs that he has compassion on us. We cannot earn his good favor, but all are invited to join him at the banquet table. What we need, however, is a belief that these things are true, that Jesus is who he says he is. We didn't dig into it, but it's pretty interesting that both of these stories that we talk about today are very similar to the stories about the prophets uh, Elijah and Elisha. Now, there are notable differences, but all we need to take from that is that Jesus in our passage today demonstrates in every way that he is superior to even those great prophets. And the people of Nain experienced it firsthand. Fear seized them all, the text says. They've never seen anyone like Jesus before. And it gets them shouting in praise because they get it. No man could deliver someone from this tragedy. But this is not an ordinary man. This is a great prophet, they exclaim. This is God himself visiting us. The people of Nain, they say. Something came alive in them in that day. They were woken from the stupor of their mundane tragedies. A widow losing her son? It's sad, but so it goes and so forth. Until suddenly it doesn't just go and so forth. Suddenly, everything is different. All the hope 
that vanishes as we witness tragedy after tragedy, the suffering that we experience, zapping away any sense of aspiration, and it all being so commonplace that it isn't even worth remarking on. Suddenly, Jesus comes out and he says, Do not weep. He says, I say to you, arise. And hope floods back in, and it totally transforms this community. They retract what they previously understood to be true of the world. Jesus was there intentionally with a purpose, and he is here with us intentionally and with a purpose. It is not our job to discern that purpose, and certainly not today. But as we sit here today, all I want for you to take away from all of this is that the children of God know God, and he cares for us. He has compassion on us. We are not alone. We are not experiencing some random event that is insignificant to the cosmos. We are known and we are loved by the most powerful being in all of eternity, and he makes himself available to us. Our challenge is to believe that. The centurion did not believe that he was worthy, but he believed that God was able and that he was compassionate. And Nain was transformed when they experienced Christ, awoken to an ancient work planned from the very beginning of God. What will we say, Keshwaki, as we walk through this? Who do we say Jesus is in the midst of our suffering? Do our actions and our words, even in our grief, do they match the hope that we have experienced in Christ? Do we present Jesus as knowable to the rest of the world, still trapped in those mundane tragedies? We tell a story about Jesus, but unless we've truly experienced him, that story will be missing many of the details that make him glorious, that make him Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for being a God that cares, that is compassionate, that sees us as we're hurting, sees us as we're walking through pain. And we ask that you would be with us, uh, especially the Tunges family in this time. We pray that uh, as a church, that we would experience Christ in these real ways that lead to real transformation. And that uh, as we are in this transition, uh, that we would be faithful to you and be faithful to the calling that you've placed upon us in this very hour and this very location. We ask that uh, these words, these stories that we've heard today, that they would make a deep imprint on our hearts and that we would refer to them as we seek to do your will. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. And now we pray as Jesus taught us to pray.